A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. Hey everyone, it's Dan. Quick note before we get to today's episode. Next week, we are launching something really special, a brand new podcast called Deep Dish. And I'm so excited about the hosts. They're our old friends, Sola and Ham El Whaley. Now, this first season of Deep Dish is four episodes, and all the episodes will appear right here in the Sporkful feed. Here's a little preview. Welcome to Deep Dish. This is a show where we do deep dives on the dishes we love. And then we eat them. I'm Sola. And I'm Ham. And we're married. And we're chefs. We met in culinary school and fell in love, huddled together at the bottom of a bunk bed, just <laughs> flipping through a modernist cookbook together. Every food you eat has a story. In Deep Dish, Sola and Ham will deep dive into the surprising stories behind a range of dishes, talking with chefs, artisans, and experts. Bagel shops were popping up every place. And that's the point at which the mafia decided to get involved. Wait, what? This is like a secret mob story? I did not see that coming. Bagels plus secret mob story. Deep Dish with Sola and Ham is part detective show. If she's willing to lie about that, what else is she lying about? (laughs) (laughs) Part quest through history. In big, bold letters, it says, we are the creators of Tacos Al Pastor. And part cooking show. There's some apple cider vinegar, garlic, Mexican oregano, and the achiote. In one episode, we'll hear how Lebanese immigrants to Mexico brought shawarma, which over time evolved into tacos al pastor. In another, bagel bakers take on the mob. Then there are the ancient cookbooks that hold the key to one of Korea's most beloved dishes. And the story of a Mississippi favorite, made popular by a cop-turned-restaurateur, who got the idea after being called to a car wreck, where he found two dead bodies and a trunk full of tamales. Man, it was hot tamales scattered all over that car. That's crazy. Right? I I thought that was crazy. Join Sola and Ham as they uncover these stories one bite at a time. When you see where bagels came from, it's very obvious that this is not just bread with a hole in it. It has its own unique characteristics, this chewy interior, this crust. You have to fight with this bread. It's a bread made by hard people. And along the way, they may have some disagreements. Is this podcast going to tear us apart? Deep Dish will forever change your perspective on foods you know and introduce you to others you don't. We're going to see a little bit of violence. Whoa. Violence? Murder? Bagels? Deep Dish. (laughs) (laughs) You know how a lot of people hollow out their bagels? People ask for hollowed out bagels. And then they fill it with cream cheese. Wait, and then you fill that cavity with cream cheese? So you have a tunnel of cream cheese. Oh my God, that's too much cream cheese. The ratios are all wrong. The ratios, you're out of your mind. The first episode of Deep Dish drops a week from today, Monday, January 22nd. As I said, all four episodes will be available right here in the Sporkful feed over the next month. So please, right now, open up your podcasting app, go to the Sporkful page and click follow or subscribe or favorite or whatever it is in your app, because that way you won't miss any episodes of Deep Dish or the Sporkful. You can click that button right now while you're listening. Thanks. Now on to today's show. I have a lot of people who call me and say, you know, all my neighbors have said, I made the best spaghetti sauce you could make. And I I think I want to try and get into supermarkets with it. 
And I say, generally, that's no problem. All you need is about $10 million to start. You have $10 million? You're quiet at the other end of the phone. <laughs> and she no. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not sure then that you ought to do this. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. But before we jump in, I have even more big news for you. When my cookbook comes out in just two months, I am going on the biggest tour in Sporkful history. These events will be book signings and live podcast tapings all across the country. I'll have more info later in the show, but for all the details, you can go to sporkful.com slash tour. All right, grab your reusable bags, because this week on the show, we're going grocery shopping. I've said it on the show before. I love grocery shopping. I like seeing what new products are on the shelves these days, finding inspiration for fun things to cook. And over the past few years, I don't know about you, but I've seen an explosion in new items. A lot of them small batch products from startup brands. Just look at the barbecue sauces or the nut butters or all the new drinks in the beverage aisle. It's dizzying. I had no idea that so many different countries had their own unique styles of yogurt. And it's not just my perception. In recent years, startup food brands have captured 3.5% of the market from big food brands. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, but supermarkets generate over $1 trillion in sales with a T, trillion, okay? So 3.5% of that is still billions of dollars. For many companies, it's market share worth fighting for. And this fight has reshaped the way the grocery store looks. Today we're asking, how did that happen? How have all these new products gotten on shelves when there are so many bigger, more powerful brands competing against them? To find out, I went to Fairway Market on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's a small regional grocery store chain. You're good. You need to get, you need to get grapes? Uh, sorry, hey, go ahead. Yes. All right, yeah, sorry. We're, we're blocking the grapes. Go on, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm here with John Stanton, my expert guide in the grocery store. I'm chairman of the food marketing department at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. How'd you get into this work? Uh, serendipitously. I went to Temple University, and when I was there for literally only one year, I got a consulting contract with Campbell Soup, and that was about 50 years ago. So I've been doing this literally for 50 years. And what, what drew you into it? What did you like about it? Money. <laughs> That's the honest answer, right? <laughs> As John and I start walking through the store, I'm looking at all the fun, new, interesting products to try. But he sees grocery stores differently. He sees a turf war. There are two battles to take place. The battle of getting on the shelf and the battle of getting it off the shelf. So when you pull a product off the shelf to buy it, you too have been pulled into the battle. And I get it. Every brand in every aisle is competing to get into your shopping cart. That's the second battle John mentioned. But I wasn't familiar with the first battle of getting on the shelf. Big brands see shelves as precious commodities. They say, listen, where it would like to be is between eye to thigh. The retailer says, well, you know, that's, this is like having real estate in, a, you know, in New York. Right, well, that, that's like Madison Avenue. Madison Avenue, exactly. So the grocery store, the retailer, says, if you want to be in the most desirable location in our store, you got to pay for it. This is called a slotting fee. And they are everywhere in grocery stores. Entire aisles are bought and paid for. In fact, John says 60 to 70% of a grocery store's profits come from these slotting fees. 
In other words, retailers make more money charging brands for shelf space than they make charging us for food. This system of slotting fees gives an advantage to bigger companies. It definitely does. Because it creates, you need a lot of money up front just to get into stores to pay yep. those fees. Yep. And bigger companies want to keep that advantage. So they'll often go so far as to buy up more space just to leave their competitors with less space. That's a great strategy. I mean, the customer can't buy their product if they're not on the shelf. Just as we're talking about this battle over shelf space, I happen to spot someone stocking products in that prime eye-to-thigh real estate. Hey, my name's Dan. I host a food podcast. Oh, hey, Dan. Nice to meet you. This is, this is Professor John here. Hi, how you Professor doing? Professor John, nice hey, to meet you, hey, Chuck. Would it be okay if I ask you a couple quick questions? Like, like uh, two minutes of your time? Yeah, I'm kind of a little sure if it's how long? Two minutes. Okay. All right. What's your job title? I'm a distributor at Pepsi-Cola from 61st Street to 97th Street on the east side of Manhattan. So anyone who's got Pepsi in, in that territory, you're making sure it's in the store? Yes, sir. And, what, and when you're walking up and down the aisles here, what are you seeing? What are you looking for? Uh, what am I looking for? I'm looking for uh, empty shelves and what I could fill and rotate and uh, new product in. And I know that all... All big companies pay slotting fees to get their products placed in supermarkets. So, like, what are you thinking about slotting fees when you come in and look and see where your products are placed? Um, it's unfair <laughs> because um, my co chief competition is Coca-Cola, and they buy out all the space whenever they can. Like, for example, can we talk about another store? Sure. sure. So right up the road at Target. Now, we all know Target's a national account, huge national account. We were up about 40% in the last year in Target, especially this one up on 86th Street. And all of a sudden, Coke did some kind of slotting payments or whatever it was. And now we used to have like maybe 40% uh, of the shelf. Now we got 20% of the oh. shelf and they have 80% of the shelf. Wow. So it is unbelievable. Yeah. Now my company has to come to bat Again, but they do that constantly. Yeah. Come on, Chuck. I mean, Pepsi is also not small potatoes. Like, they, they must be able to fight back against Coke. True, but in Manhattan, the shelf space, as you could see, is a premium. At this point, Chuck couldn't stay to chat more. Hello? I'm downstairs. Come on down. But his point is that even if Pepsi responds in some way, it's a constant battle. And in a busy store, a few months with your product on 20% of the shelves instead of 40% can really hurt sales. Now there's a new issue for people like Chuck to worry about. Pepsi and other big companies still have to pay these slotting fees, but grocery stores often are not charging smaller brands slotting fees. Why not? Well, it's not out of the goodness of their hearts. John says grocery stores started changing their strategy when they started collecting data on us. Back literally 20, 40 years ago, the manufacturers used to give data information to retailers. Today, retailers are selling that information to the manufacturers. It's uh, data has been the story. So how do grocery stores get all that precious data? Well, you give it to them every time you use your Shoppers Club card. Over two thirds of consumers have one of these cards. Kroger, the largest grocery chain in the country, says 96% of purchases at its stores are tied to a loyalty card. Over the years, they've been able to get deeper into the consumer who are buying and they're learning more about what people want. And one of the big things grocery stores are looking at with all that data is what types of products get bought together. What different items are likely to end up in the same person's cart? 
John gives me an example of how this plays out. He was consulting for a big grocery store chain, and the chain was taking a look at their baby food aisle. So they looked at the shelf, and they said, hey, we don't sell a lot of papaya for baby foods. Let's take one of these products and we'll replace papaya with beans. Some other higher yeah, seller, baby yeah, food. big sellers. But when the store stopped selling papaya baby food, suddenly sales of their other baby products plummeted. So what happened? The person that bought the uh, papaya, there weren't very many of them, but they also bought diapers. They also bought, you know, the, the uh, washable pads. They also bought all the other varieties, etc. So when they lost papaya, they lost the customer who spends a lot of money. So even though papaya baby food wasn't a big seller, the people who bought papaya baby food tended to be bigger spenders overall. In recent years, these insights have led grocery stores to pay more attention to the products that attract certain customers. They're focusing more not on how many grapes do we buy, but how much money do we make from a, a basket that have grapes in it. The stores want to bring in the customers whose baskets and shopping carts will be more profitable overall. And they need data to identify those customers. According to the publication The Markup, grocery stores collect data on age, race, finances, and employment by using the phone number you've linked to your frequent shopper card and data they buy from third parties. But those cards aren't their only tool. The Wall Street Journal has reported that grocery stores use video surveillance to see how long you'll look for an item before giving up. They call that the walk rate. If an item is popular but has a low walk rate, stores give it prime real estate to be sure you can find it before you stop looking. So the stores have all this data, and one of the key takeaways from it is that those high-value customers who spend a lot of money, they want smaller brands, local brands, products with fewer processed ingredients, items that are different from the big companies. But for a long time, it was very hard for these brands to get on shelves. Now, one of the things that people complain about is we, uh, we're a small manufacturer. We just don't have the money to pay these slotting fees. And it's true, it really, really does impact the small manufacturer. Now many retailers have made a major change. They're giving up slotting fees from smaller brands to bring in those more upscale artisanal items that bigger spenders want. In other words, they're making sure there's an equivalent of papaya baby food in every aisle. And this change has allowed a lot of startups to get on shelves faster than they might have a decade ago. That's helped some of these startups hit it big. John and I arrive in the pasta sauce aisle. After seeing the big brands like Prego and Ragu, we come across Rayo's. Named after like a famous restaurant. Italian restaurant in New York. Yeah. They used to say it was the hardest table to get a reservation for. It ends up that the Suns uh, got involved with the business and said, we've got a really good brand here. Right, people have heard of Rayo's. Yeah. They've done a great job. So they launched a tomato sauce, which, am I right, didn't they sell it to Campbell's recently for a very large sum of money? Yeah, they sold it to Campbell's, yeah. Another sort of relatively recent shift in the grocery business that I'd love to talk with you more about, which is just the proliferation of the number of different varieties that each brand puts out. You know, like, there, there was Ragu and Prego, and then they had, like, I remember when they launched, like, Extra Chunky, and maybe there was Spicy. Now, I mean, just look at Rayo's. There's marinara, tomato and basil, vodka arrabbiata, roasted garlic, vo regular vodka, four cheese, Regular. sensitive marinara with no onions or garlic, 
caramelized onion, bolognese, mushroom and bell pepper, pizza sauce, margarita pizza sauce. That's all just from Rayo's. This display is nice. This is called billboard effect. I mean, you, you are clearly, as you stand in this aisle, taken by right. it's, it's Rayo's. It's like one, two, three, four. It's like seven or eight shells on top of each other just yeah. you know all rayos so it's just like a wall of rayos yeah and so that really speaks to building the brand because it catches your eye when you're walking down the Abs- aisle absolutely if you get a nice display like this so you're really focusing on the brand well maybe it is good to have different choices i mean if you had all this space and it was all the same product not so, so exciting it would not be too exciting This huge variety of products now offered by brands, from tomato sauces to chips to just about everything else, is also pretty new. And John says this change is also fueled by consumer data. Because the food brands can also get access to this data for a price. And all this information allows them to pinpoint trends and figure out what other flavors and varieties people might want. And it's easier for companies to make all these new flavors now thanks to new advances in manufacturing technology. Computerized systems can clean and switch manufacturing lines to produce a new flavor much faster now. Years ago, a company might have had to shut down a line for a whole day or two to switch between products, and you can't make money while your lines are down. Now they can make more varieties faster. And by using consumer data, they can deliver them to the grocery stores where people actually want them. And all those different varieties make it easier to fill shelves and create that billboard effect that John and I see in the tomato sauce aisle. He says this kind of display is the most effective ad a brand can have. This is really, when you come in here, this is really where the prime time is. You know, you talk about on television, prime time. No, this is prime time. You've got to be in front of the product in order to buy the product. You know, and that's that's prime. I got a potential customer standing in front of my product with money in their pocket, not not at nine o'clock at night watching a television commercial. Um, and so this is huge. This is the moment you're going to make the sale. Yeah, this is where the tire hits the road. Everything you've been doing in the company, managing supply chain, getting the best ingredients, all that comes down to right here. So you can understand why there's such fierce competition for the best supermarket real estate and why stores are giving some prime spots to smaller brands. But what does it take for a smaller brand to get to the point that it's ready to get on shelves in the first place? And once it gets there, how does it stay there? We'll find out. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Mm-mm, it's very good. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. 
Find Tillamook Ice Cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's peanut butter cups now at a store near you found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. And hey, before we get back to the show, I want to tell you more about this tour. All right. When my cookbook, Anything's Possible, comes out in March, I'm going to be going on the biggest tour in Sporkful history. These events will be book signings and live podcast tapings. I'm going to be in conversation with some incredible folks, many of whom you've heard here on the show before. They'll be turning the tables and asking me some questions. It's going to be great. So where am I going and who will I be chatting with? Well, I'm glad you asked. New York City with cookbook author and YouTube star Claire Saffitz. Long Island with top chefs Gail Simmons. Chicago with the Korean vegan Joanne Molinaro. Twin Cities with Chef Ann Kim. Atlanta with the New York Times' Kim Severson. Miami with WLRN's Carlos Frias. Washington, D.C. with PBS host Patty Hinnich. Philadelphia with PBS and WHYY host Kehlani Palmasano. 
Boston with Dan Souza of America's Test Kitchen, and still more to come. Tickets for this first leg of the tour are on sale starting today. So please go to sporkful.com slash tour for details. We'll be putting more shows on sale in coming weeks, including Texas, Denver, the West Coast. So be sure you subscribe to the Sporkful newsletter. and Follow me on Instagram for those announcements. Again, the site for tickets is sporkful.com slash tour. I can't wait to see you on the road this spring. Okay, back to the show. We've covered some of the trends that have allowed smaller food brands to get on store shelves faster than they used to, right? But even with these changes, not every startup food company makes it to the big supermarket chains. One person who understands why some of them get further than others is Steven Vigilante. He spent three years as an investor in CPGs, that's consumer packaged goods companies. He invested in some of the small new food brands you see on shelves today. In 2018, he decided to go to work for one of those brands. Olipop, a new soda company with big ambitions to compete with the largest soda companies in the world by offering a soda with less sugar and a lot of fiber. There's 80% more fiber in Olipop than there is in a serving of Metamucil. So it's a it's a it's a healthy dose of, of fiber. It's a third of your daily intake. On on the Olipop website under the uh, FAQ, it, it says, uh, "Is it okay to drink more than one Olipop a day?" And the answer is, we recommend starting with one can a day, then working your way up to two or more if it feels right. Tell me about your strategy for incorporating, you know, for, for, for working your way up. <laughs> if you have a low lower fiber diet, if you drop nine grams of fiber in, in one sitting or 18 if you have two at a time, like there's a chance it might just run right through you. So we don't you know, want people to have like a negative experience. Olipop was launched in the Bay Area by Ben Goodwin. Ben made his first sales by driving around to health food stores in the area, convincing them to stock his product. Stephen was in L.A. at the time, and as someone who had experience with small beverage brands, he knew where Olipop needed to be to get a start in L.A. If you launch in, on the West Coast, you generally go into, you want to try to get into Erewhon first. For folks who don't know Erewhon, it seems like what they're most famous for is being the most expensive <laughs> grocery store anybody's ever been to. It's like they have like $25 smoothies. Yep. And um, I can tell you from my time doing this that the second... I would tell people what I do or what I'm working on or whatever it is. And the second we got into Erewhon and I could say in the conversation, we are now selling an Erewhon, the whole conversation changed. Because in LA, it's just like a rite of passage. It's kind of the first, it's the first litmus test of like, can you sell to like the most curious, highest income consumers? Now, as we discussed, if you can sell to those consumers, you'll have an advantage with retailers across the country who want those higher income folks and might cut you a break on slotting fees to bring those customers in. But how exactly did Olipop get into Erewhon? Well, here's another tip for small brands. It's always good to hire someone who has connections. Like, to be completely honest, I, like, knew the owners of Erewhon here in Los Angeles. And I literally showed up at their office at the time in West Hollywood, which was above their store, and, like, brought samples in. There are at least 200 different beverage options at Erewhon. And in 2019, Steven says Olipop was one of the top sellers, which is great. But there were only five Erewhon stores in L.A. at the time. Now there are seven. Olipop wanted to get a lot bigger. And if you want to go in a more mass market direction from Erewhon while still being in a more upscale natural foods type store, the next logical steps are Whole Foods and Sprouts. But in order to get into those stores, Olipop needed to knock something else out. Because if you think about it, you don't see any empty slots in grocery stores, right? So every time a new product comes in, it's replacing something else. Even though Olipop calls itself a soda, they're not in the soda aisle. Their competition was the product that was sitting right next to them on the shelf. We often sit in the same sets as kombucha. And for if you look back in history, too, in 2018, 2019 when we launched, 
there had been this like pr- massive boom in the kombucha category and there was a ton of brands and a lot of stores that had full cooler sets just dedicated to kombucha. Like kombucha, Alipop is sold individually in the refrigerated aisle and sells for about two fifty dollars a can. Now, that's obviously more than a can of Coke, but less than a bottle of kombucha. And Stephen says at this time, the kombucha bubble was starting to burst. It felt like it was starting to kind of like top out with consumers. The product was like a little bit too expensive, maybe didn't taste as good as it needed to to really scale with the masses. So there was all these kombucha brands on shelf, and we were just making the argument like, let us take out one of those and see how we can compete with the rest of the kombuchas. And that's, you know, that was like a core component of our strategy at the beginning, which is proving we could be better than the bottom half of the kombucha set. Olipop became part of a new, broader category called functional beverages. These are beverages that say they serve some function in addition to hydrating you, some kind of purported health benefit. The New York Times reported that from 2020 to 2021, functional beverages are one of the fastest-growing non-alcoholic drink categories in the U.S. And during COVID, when so many things slowed down, small food brands grew. Some of that had to do with the trends we discussed earlier. But Stephen says there was another factor at play, a rush of investment in food startups. There was kind of this like artificial-ish bump during COVID where everybody was online, everybody's shopping, everybody was really into their health at the time. And you saw this boom in like better for you consumer products online. And candidly, it it made a lot of businesses think they were more successful than they were. And they raised money off of those numbers. It used to be like if you had a deck for a beverage brand, you could raise a couple million bucks a few years ago. And now it's like you need traction, you need to prove that there's actually product market fit. People aren't just throwing money at a deck. You, you need anyway. to have an actual beverage and maybe not just a deck. Yeah, that's a good way <laughs> to put it. <laughs> yeah. About a decade ago, new food and beverage brands started to take off. And then bigger food companies started buying up the smaller successful ones, like the way Campbell's bought Rayo's pasta sauce. Those acquisitions led more people to start food companies and raise more money faster because the market was heating up. At the end of the day, the goal of most startup businesses is to get acquired. And so as you have more companies coming in and buying businesses earlier, that then incentivizes venture capitalists to come invest earlier. Alipop was able to ride that wave. In 2019, they raised $2.5 million in a seed funding round. The next year, they launched nationally in Sprouts and in over half of Kroger stores nationwide. In a few years, Alipop went from a handful of stores in California to hundreds across the country, which is great, but it means they needed to make and ship tons more soda. And filling large orders requires a lot of capital. And costs are especially high when you're a small food company. You can't take advantage of economies of scale. Beverages in particular are tough because they're very heavy, which makes them expensive to ship. So let's say you find a way to make more of your product while keeping costs down. Now you can offer it to more stores, get it on more shelves. Great, right? But traditionally, that's when you hit those pricey slotting fees. So how exactly do you convince a grocery store to waive a slotting fee? So if you're growing really fast, and there's a lot of consumer adoption for the product, there's a lot of buzz on social media, and you're a retailer and you don't have that product, you're probably just leaving money on the table, right? And so as a brand, you have more negotiating leverage to not pay slotting fees if a retailer kind of wants and needs your product. You also have to remember that we're bringing you know, new users to a category in, in a lot of cases. And so people who maybe at Walmart, as an example, we're buying traditional soda and we're not even looking at this like digestive health set are now moving there and, you know, candidly spending more money per can than they are on a traditional soda. And that also matters to the retail, right? So you're not just like cannibalizing existing products. You're actually bringing new people into new sets in the store. And that's a very important metric to look at. What you're saying is that uh, a product like Olipop may bring new customers into 
these stores and get them shopping there. And then while they're there, they're going to buy other things. Exactly. Exactly right. Is it fair to say that on average, the customers that a brand like Alipop would bring in might be uh, might have more disposable income, might be high, bigger spending customers? If they're the kinds of people who are going to spend two fifty for a can of of soda, then then they may spend more money on other products too. Correct. That's a that's a safe assumption to make. I think. As Olipop grew, it got a lot of buzz on social media. But you're only the hot item for so long, right? What about the next new brand, the brand after that? How does Olipop keep grocery stores interested in their product and wanting it enough that they'll waive the slotting fees? Another tip, it never hurts to have celebrities on your side. So we partnered with um, Camila Cabello, big pop star, a year and a half ago. And kind of the first thing we did with her, we actually went into, with their permission, there, this was not like something we just did out of nowhere, but we went into the Walmart, <laughs> a Walmart here in Burbank with her and her team. And we actually shut down like the produce section for an evening and filmed like a produced TikTok where she was like walking down the aisles and grabbing an Olipop and her, her outfit would change with each can she grabbed. And so, you know, and you eat very clearly, you could see the Walmart logo in the, in the background of that one. So um, they loved that one. We were featured prominently in the Nicki Minaj uh, Barbie World music video earlier this year that's now surpassed 100 million views on on YouTube and uh, probably another 30 million. Is Is that like product placement? Do you pay for that? Yeah, that was a product placement partnership. I am friendly with a production company here in Los Angeles that produces a lot of the big uh, music videos. They love the team and they just thought we fit very well in the aesthetic of the video and I was kind of like, this feels like a great hack to like get us in the Barbie conversation, position us next to an artist like Nicki Minaj. People would hear that and they would say, okay, great. So you do this stuff on social media, people on social media see it, and then maybe it makes them more likely to go to the store and want to buy that product. Yeah. But you're you're saying that also the stores themselves see those things and it might make them more likely to want to carry your product. Yeah, I mean, people, average TikTok users on TikTok two hours a day at this point, right? And there's well over 100 million Americans on there. And TikTok is a huge part of of our strategy. And this isn't just helpful with customers. Grocery store buyers, the people at the big retail chains that decide what products to carry, they're on social media too. The buyers are often heavily impacted by what their friends and family and their neighbors are talking about. And so they notice this stuff, right? It's definitely paid dividends. Today, Alipop is in over 30,000 grocery stores. As they've grown, they've also had to change the way they present themselves. We started out in that, you know, very much focused on better for you, digestive health, higher income demo. But now we're nationwide at Walmart and Target and Kroger. And we've kind of done a bunch of consumer research to realize like people don't really want a health lecture from their soda brand. They just want something that tastes good and is maybe lower in sugar. So we are, I think we've crossed this chasm out of just being like a health and wellness product into just like almost like a lifestyle brand. We are expanding the like health and wellness set into new users who maybe never kind of shopped for these type of products before because the product tastes so good. Um, And I think that's an important thing that a lot of early stage brands miss is they want to make the perfect product that, you know, is super perfect ingredients and all this stuff, but that often results in it not tasting as good and it being, you know, a higher price point that is unattainable for a lot of people. Back at the grocery store, Professor John Stanton tells me Alipop's shift in strategy makes sense. He's skeptical of any new product that focuses too much on health claims. Consumers are fickle. There'll always be something that'll be in the spotlight. Now it's like good for your digestive health, etc. One was vitamin D not too long ago. It had to be vitamin D. Eventually, we're going to see 
the spotlight move away, and people are going to be doing some other thing. So if you're too reliant on the health trend of the moment, your food brand may not be built to last, especially if you're aiming for mass market success. And in general, John says a lot of companies don't understand the factors that really influence purchasing decisions. These things that people say are so important are not the products that they like. Uh, Everyone wants to be a a good citizen, wants to uh, buy sustainable, but they're not going to pay more for it. So being healthy and sustainable aren't really the keys to long-term mass market success. There's nothing in the food area that I would say has a guaranteed long lifespan of new products. 70% of new products fail. And I'm on the, the low side. I mean, there are other people out there saying 90%. So how does a brand make it? John says once they get in stores, if it's going to stay there long term, it won't be because they have the best shelf placements or the best packaging or the greatest health benefits or the most sustainable manufacturing or celebrity endorsements. They need to sell at the right price and they need one thing above all else, which may seem obvious, but John says it bears repeating. I just looked at some data that I've had over the years and taste has been consistently the number one attribute in the food business. You couldn't keep a product in business if it didn't taste good. Next week, our brand new podcast, Deep Dish Launches. It's part detective show, part quest through history, and part cooking class. And we are so excited about the hosts, the chefs, recipe developers, and YouTube stars, Sola and Ham El Whaley. Our first episode is about a Mississippi Delta police detective turned tamale king. His journey started when he was called to the scene of a car accident on Christmas Eve, where he found two dead bodies and a trunk full of tamales. That one's next week. You don't want to miss it. Meanwhile, if you're looking for more Sporkful episodes, check out last week's show with Aubrey Gordon. Aubrey's an author, fat activist, and the co-host of the podcast Maintenance Phase. We talk about New Year's resolutions, Ozempic, and much more. That episode's up now. Check it out. My thanks to John Stanton, professor and chair of the Food, Pharma, and Healthcare Department at St. Joseph's University, and to Stephen Vigilante, director of growth and talent at Olipop. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Natambi Peters, living in Long Beach, California, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. <laughs>